Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig, your host. Today, I'm very excited because it's one of those episodes where I get to talk very, very little because I've got two people much, much smarter than I am uh, here on the podcast. So I get to fire off the random stupid question every now and then and then just watch them go like a wind up toys, right? So hot on the heels of the episode that I did with Aparna Verma, uh, I'm now recording with her and Ronnie R.R. Verdi. So you can find both of them online and I'm gonna link to all the stuff below. We're gonna talk about their books at the end of this episode. But today, basically what happened, Aparna, last time you came on, and I told people this after the episode was over, you know, we hung up and then we, I put the episode together and I had to come on and say like, look, I know, <laughs> we skated over a lot of issues, we didn't dive in, into anything, but you and I were talking afterwards and you're like, oh yeah, no, we gotta get into some of this stuff. Let me call my friend Ronnie. So we've got Ronnie on now to talk about comparative mythology. Now. That it might at first glance seem to take us somewhat far afield from a sci-fi fantasy book club, but I would argue, no, it does not. Um, and this is going to be very interesting stuff to anybody who wants to be a better reader, a better writer, a better, I don't know, citizen of the world, whatever you know you want to throw in there. It should be pretty good. So Aparna, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Of course. And Ronnie, welcome for the first time. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right, guys. So let me let me kick it to Ronnie first. Oh, actually, you know what, Ronnie, before I do that, I'm going to kick it to myself and say, hey, everybody, go to the legendarium.com and check out our Patreon link and the Discord link and the past episodes and the future episodes on the calendar. OK, Ronnie, now I'm going to kick it to you and ask you a very, very elementary question, which is what is comparative mythology? Okay, um, so the name sort of does give it away, and it's the study of similar myths throughout different cultures. Uh, they can be through uh, different time periods, because myths have this history of not only being shared and retold through cultures, but co-opted, um, subsumed, and then re-evolving over time. So the same myth might show up slightly altered, which has led to certain tropes being plucked from myths. And this continues throughout time until we have very similar storytelling structures and narrative devices that are prevalent in stories, not just in Western society, but Asian societies, um, Eastern European. And we, we usually see the surface similarities of them, but we don't realize a lot of times they come from these shared myths. Um, some of the oldest that are being studied when you, people think of comparative mythology are the, the ancient Greek, the old Norse, and then the uh, South Asian myths, because they come from a similar root. It's theorized uh, from Proto-Indo-European roots. So Proto-Indo-European, for those uh, who didn't take uh, too many linguistics classes like I did, uh, that would be like, um, you might have heard this term in a linguistic format where we're talking about this this root language that's lost now, we don't know what it is, mm -hmm. but Proto-Indo-European, <laughs> there's, a, there's a word for you. Proto-Indo-European is this, uh, this theorized uh, language from which stems a whole bunch of other languages. Yep. Uh, Usually including... Old Norse, Sanskrit, um, yeah. Greek, and then uh, parts of Latin. And then we theorize that they came from the, the, the early Scythian people because their DNA is found in still North Indians, um, most heavily right now in the Mongol population. And then obviously some of the Northeastern and uh, Western European populations. So is what you're saying that um, it's the same thing with the mythology as well? We're tracing mythology. We're, we're doing asterisk mythology, as we might say in linguistics, all yep. the way back to Proto-Indo-European. Yep. 
and as a language geek, you'll find this fascinating, but there's a god who shows up in many different languages and cultures, and his original name is Deus Peta. And it literally translates to Sky Father. Um, Deus and Dei eventually comes from the idea of sky. And Deus Pitter is in Sanskrit. And Pitter is still the word for father or Pitaji later. Um, that's kept there, but he's still a South Asian sky deity. And he shows up in the Greek because the original name for Zeus was never Zeus. It was Deus Peter, and it eventually became Zeus Peter, and then truncated to Zeus. So Zeus's name is not really Zeus if you look it up. It's still a title, and his title was Skyfather. And this has continued to evolve into other places. So with the Roman Jupiter, his name was Deus Peter again, and then it became Du Peter, and then it became Jupiter and oh, enough yeah. of the data exists. And then when you have a similar god, usually the mythology around them continues to fall. Um, so if we take the idea of a sky father down to the next level, we have what are the storm gods. Um, so we have Baal and Hadad, who famously a storm god killing a giant oceanic serpent, which is similar to Thor, who kills Jormungandr, a storm god who kills an oceanic serpent. And then we have in South Asian mythology, Indra, who is mm-hmm. our storm god, and he kills, uh, he kills Vitra, who is... Um, one of the Asuras, a demon, who takes the form of a giant serpent. He's also called the first dragon. And when he's killed and slain by Indra, um, Indra also wields a hammer, uh, which is imbued with all the powers of a lightning bolt. It's technically a proto-club. Does that sound familiar? It's Thor's hammer, Mjolnir. And all these actually pop up within 1000 AD or BC, around the same time as some of the older epics, too. So there's this weird theory of why are these myths also popping up at the exact same time from cultures that are a little bit isolated? They didn't have direct trade. Um, we do know the Greeks and the Indians specifically did trade, but there wasn't enough at that time to like their myths also spread up the exact same time to make that happen. So most of the evidence points that they're, they're coming out of an earlier protoculture that must have spread, evolved, carried enough root core beats and language structures and early fables and folklores and stories and myths that they just became readopted and co-opted into different cultures when they settled and we became more agricultural people. When we set down roots and different civilizations were no longer nomadic, they started creating farming empires because the myths also change. Um, so the dragon slayer myth is one of the biggest cooperative mythology myths to trace the evolution of society, where if you go from what the dragon stole, originally the dragons hoarded water, which is a precious resource. As we became more agricultural, dragons started stealing livestock and cattle. And the myth evolves to usually heroes, knights and uh, people to go save the cattle. Then it evolves into princesses. Because once we became more kingdom societies with larger wealth more and patriarchal. empires, we started valuing princesses instead as the currency. So the dragon steals that. And this has continued to modern day storytelling, where if you want to look at a very modern take of the dragon, not just obviously smog from Bilbo Baggins uh, and The Hobbit. And this makes sense because Tolkien not only translated Beowulf, the Norse epics, he was a huge classical lit study guy, but the Death Star um, serves the exact same purpose story-wise as a dragon. On top of it is Princess Leia, and if you go back and as a language nerd, you'll appreciate this. You look at Vitra. Um, he was also called the first obstacle. The whole point of that story was killing Vitra. He's the idea of a climax. Slaying the dragon is the climax of your story. And it is from that we got the idea structurally that continued evolving that slaying the dragon is the, the end of the story. That is the big moment. The hero, hero structure. The hero structure eventually became codified and reduced out of this. And then Star Wars, destroying the Death Star, is that moment. It's where Luke comes to his fulfillment of the Jedi way. Um, He trusts the Force. He's already rescued the princess from it. And the Death Star holds the galaxy in danger, similar to the way the dragon would hold an empire or something else in danger. Mm. I don't want to take the whole thing, but that's just one shared myth and how prevalent it's become to storytelling. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go for it, Aparna. 
I, I just wanted to point out that, you know, as Ronnie's like showing some examples, one thing that to know as a writer is how different cultures share story structures and story narratives. So I think it's really useful to understand the history of where did the three act or quote unquote uh, heroes like, you know, structure evolve from. And we know it's actually from these very proto in proto Indo-European like myths that we've go by eons and eons. I think it's also really important to like then study the epics, uh, you know, um, like if we look at the Odyssey and the Mahabharata, we realize there's some very, very similar frame narratives uh, that the Wheel of Time later uses. And then, and then from there on, like we see so many other um, stories take from that. So I think it's just really cool to see the threads pull back into time and also realize how borders weren't very weren't real borders back then in terms of story and ideas there were a lot they were more blurred and that's how we get the stories that we have today this is first of all this is all very very fascinating uh you've given me 18 different directions i can go (laughs) i i do love uh the idea of the sky father uh, mm-hmm. going way back to what you're talking about earlier and how, you know, we can trace all these things back to this original God, the sky father. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it kind of makes me chuckle a little bit because the anti-religious might look at the religious and, uh, and make fun of them by saying, you know, you know, Oh yeah. Pray to your sky God. And, you know, Cling we to historically your, always your have sticks, your sky God. Yeah. And it's like, no, you're, you're tapping into something very, very old. You're not yeah. just a, uh, you're not just being, you know, supposedly clever. I don't know. It's, well, there, that's there's a scientific study that shows that people are pre-wired for spirituality. Um, how you want to find that is different because you can do it, obviously, through a codified religion system. And then you have more things like Buddhism, which people argue is not necessarily religion. It's a way of life because uh, you can technically be both like Christian and as well as Buddhist because it's a life code path. Um, and that gets very mucky depending on who you are and what you want to believe there. But spirituality transcends the idea of just religion but it makes sense we look at us back historically like if your people your early proto people you have no idea of how weather works or anything it's probably to your least survival comfort to have the idea there's something benevolent out there that's going to make it rain when you need crops or you know um a sheltering storm or just a water source if you can't find one and you you can't explain thunderstorms any other way so the idea of one of the earliest deities being a sky father along with solar deities, which we know um, are some of the oldest. It just makes sense for people to want to gravitate towards that. It gives you a a clarity purpose. It's probably why it was so easy to co-op in other cultures and share that idea of that God, because everybody needs a water source. Everybody likes the idea of if you're rooted in the firmament down here, you know, there's only two ways you can go down or up. And historically um, at the same time, we created the idea of above. We had the idea of down below and like something similar to mm. hell. And people don't like going down there. Um, <laughs> so it makes sense. You're going to want to worship the guy up top, right? And another deity that we have that's shared in similar myths is the idea of the fire god. Um, and historically, originally, it's a fire goddess. We found out a lot of protocultures actually worshipped a female goddess first. And in South Asian culture, as well as some others, it was shown that not only was she female, a lot later changed her into a male god. There's certain linguistic um, things going on with certain fire deities in South Asian culture. Um, I'm forgetting one right now. They're not proto, but they're just after that. And I actually wrote a Twitter thread all about it, which was super long. I should probably dig that up so I can bring it back up later in the conversation. But um, yeah, it was one of the earliest ones too, because once we discovered fire, um, the fire goddess usually incorporated the idea of more than fi- fire, but what fire could represent for society. 
um, the idea of the hearth, so home, uh, warmth, place to cook your food. So the idea of uh, not just food, but what food meant in terms of providing. She was a god of nourishment. Um, also became a family hierarchy goddess. So the idea that with her, she also tended to the family, um, which is why same in Greek, you have, you know, goddesses of the hearth and goddesses of marriage. Uh, earlier proto-god and goddesses usually incorporated many roles. And as we evolve, we sort of start piecemealing off bits of gods and sort of making them into just the god of war or just the god of lightning or just the god of this. But usually the earlier ones incorporated larger societal values and fewer roles. Okay, so I want to run an idea past you guys. This is absolutely untested. I have no idea <laughs> if I'm just talking out my ass here. But Aparna, I'll, I'll run it by you first. As mm-hmm. you guys have been talking, um, hey, you know, you mentioned, uh, Aparna, you brought up the Wheel of Time. Uh, that's, of course, that's going to ping the pleasure centers of my brain as a, as a <laughs> Jordan fanatic. But um, the, the idea is this. There are popular writers and there are critically acclaimed writers. And sometimes, you know, the Venn diagrams overlap and that's fine. Uh, But for the most part, it's uh, you've got the the literary side on one side and then the popular Mm -hmm. authors on the other. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, (laughs) of, you know, quote unquote, and good Lord, I hate this word, but the literary writers. Um, on the one side, do they tap into these at all? Because I'm thinking of Tolkien. I'm thinking of uh, Robert Jordan. I'm thinking of now Brandon Sanderson, the biggest fantasy author in at least the English speaking world um, that kind of tap into these er myths that Ronnie's talking about uh, in a very transparent often way. Uh, Is that, are these, authors more likely to become popular because it's hitting some mm-hmm. kind of like lowest common denominator or, or base uh, programming that we have as humans, whereas others are avoiding that or they, they believe they're transcending it or they're, you know, in, engaging with it in some other way or, or trying not yeah. to. Does that make any sense? Like, no, it does. No. It, does that- it, it, def- it definitely makes sense. It definitely makes sense. And I think, um, when we, t- when we think back to stories like Lord of the Rings with Tolkien, um, I think what that story does really well is tap into like almost like a very ancient story selling structure um, that's at once both familiar, but Tolkien makes newer in the way that he uses like different races of elves, orcs, dwarves, whatnot. Um, I think there's this, there's this one narrative structure that Actually, when uh, I took this uh, mythology class back at um, uh, back in college, um, and our mythology teacher told us this one narrative structure called "Leaving the Village," and that translates now where we'll, we, you know, I, I'm forgetting who said this, but every story is either a stranger comes into town or the hero goes on an adventure. And that derives from the narrative structure of leaving the village. So what does leaving the the village actually mean? It happens. It's a, it's also a lifetime. If you look, if you think about life coaching, it's an arc that all of us go through where the village is your, your center. The village is your home, your heart. Um, It's everything that you're familiar with, but there comes a, a point in time, either in your journey, the hero's journey, your own life, where you have to leave the village and leave the familiar grounds and go into the forest or whatever journey you know you have ahead of you. So it's it's a moment of um, reflection. It's a moment of fear, 
because you're about to step on this, you know, unknown path. And how many times have we seen that in our own lives? Then we see that mirrored in stories. And that structure, leaving the village, is so familiar to us because we do it all the times. And stories, we just make it more apparent. It's not as sexy of like, I'm going to go to a different city because I have a new job where I don't know anyone. It's like, no, Bobo goes to like, you know, go on an adventure or Frodo goes and to with the Fellowship of the Ring, like where there's fighting, there's dragons. It's a lot, it's a lot more, it's a lot sexier, you know? Mm. Um, and I think that's why we're drawn to stories like that. Um, I will say now, you know, the, the idea of like, you know, with Wheel of Time, like unknown farm boy realizes he's like, you know, um, powerful. And we've seen that trope now uh, when we look at tropes of like, it's always like the, the village boy or like the innocent girl who has, who's actually like a raging god or goddess powers. <laughs> you know, right. it's like, how many times have we seen that? So I think now in more so modern 21st century storytelling we're looking at stories that kind of flip that on the head because we've seen it so many times so for me as a writer what's more interesting is like if someone knows the storytelling structure of the village leaving the village if they know the hero's journey how do you complicate that how do you add another layer of complexity that adds a, a new a new way to looking at stories that we've seen before from like tolkien or jordan Mm-hmm. And it's it's always interesting to look at those stories that try and do something else and to recognize that although you are trying to complicate that, uh, you know, dare I say, original story structure, uh, you're trying to complicate it, you're trying to flip it on its head, you're trying to do something with it, but you're still in conversation with it, whether yeah. you're pl- whether you're playing along or you're playing against, it's still... Uh, you know, the, if, if you're playing against it and you're flipping it on its head, it's not going to make as much sense if people don't understand that original story structure. So they mm-hmm. need to, you know, they need to read those old epics or watch Star Wars or read Harry Potter yeah. or whatever well, to get like the... Go ahead, Ronnie. In the lineage of the previous stories, which is part of why they work too. So one of the biggest things that Wheel of Time was criticized for early on was its similarities in the early books to Lord of the Rings. Sure. Um but that was also part because Jordan loved Lord of the Rings and same which uh, people forget Sh- Sh- uh, Shannara. I always say it's Shannara, but it's Shannara. Uh, the Shannara series originally. Oh, he too. gave up. He gave up as soon as the TV show he, came he out. He's like, oh, okay. fine, it's Shannara. Because <laughs> he corrected me once too. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Oops. <laughs> yeah. He says it to you at your face. You're like, yes, sir. Um, yeah, MTV backed a big truck of money up to him and said, hey, can we call it Shannara? And he's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. But. <laughs> This is exactly what happened with the original myths. They caught on and they kept getting retold and re-co-opted. And it's actually a literary um, tradition. What people don't know is, for example, The Witcher is very similar in many ways to uh, Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melibony down to the White Wolf moniker that Geralt has was also with um, Elric. And a lot of the the idea of the convergence of spheres. And part of that is because I can't remember the author's name, um, how to say it, the, the Polish author who wrote it. Is it Sapowski? Uh, yes, Kowski, whatever. I, okay. yeah, I'm not totally uh, sure. I, but he, he actually translated um, Elric into Polish. So he had mm. kind of a connection to those series. And when you look at Tolkien, people forget not only did he translate Beowulf, um, there's also an old, um, oh, it's a German uh, language drama by Wagner, and it's called uh, Des Ring der Nibelung. And what it mm. is, it is called The Ring Cycle. And it is a German epic, a fantasy play about the four cycles of this great ring forged by evil 
that can take over the world and destroy everything. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> like when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, he was sort of writing in conversation with Beowulf because um, a lot of the characters in, in the final beats of The Hobbit are pretty similar to Beowulf down to Smaug, who represents Fafnir, the great dragon yeah. who hoards wealth. Um, and originally Fafnir is killed by Sigurd in the myths. This goes back to the Dragon Slayer myth and also ties into another myth, the myth of impenetrability, which goes both ways. For Sigurd killing Fafnir, he bathes in its blood and he gets like immortal dragon skin. He becomes impervious, but for one spot where an oak leaf uh, sticks to his back and he's left uh, vulnerable there and he can be stabbed and killed later. Frodo, instead, after Smog's death, is, I mean, not Frodo, Bilbo, he's gifted what? Mithril. He's gifted a suit that is nearly impenetrable of armor. The idea of in relation to killing the dragon, you can gain some kind of impenetrability is, is a very old myth. And then in this case with Smog, um, Tolkien gave him one weakness as well. He's supposed to be, you know, hard as steel, but he has that one weakness where if you make that one shot, you can kill Smog. It's also similar to Achilles, right? Like with the Achilles heels. is the myth of, and by the way, the the original version that, of Achilles. Yeah, that's that's it's, that's it's the wrong version. Yeah, yeah. So there is a Roman uh, play called the Achilliad, which was written after the original Odyssey and Iliad. So in the original ones, Achilles is never dipped in the river Styx. He does have impenetrability, but it's very similar to in Raman or Ramayama, as it would be said in the West, which is a titular. Um, epic of the same time similar to the odyssey and in there one of the main characters garan who it's spelled garna uh, in the west he's given a suit of divine armor that is impenetrable now in the original iliad so is achilles his mother um beseeches hephaestus to make a suit to protect her son and in the old statues and old art of achilles he's actually pierced through the opening between the armor um when he gives it up he's, mm-hmm. he's shot through the waist he's never shot through the heel and killed that way um, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he himself is actually mortal. It's his armor that's impenetrable. And after losing that in some iterations or being shot between it is how he's killed. So that's another comparative myth. The idea of the impenetrability with one fallibility, Loki and um, Balder. Is it, sorry, this. sorry to interrupt. Isn't Gurna from Mahabharata, not from the Ramayana? I'm sorry, what did you say? You broke up. Isn't Gurna from the Mahabharata? Oh, Mahabharata, yes, yeah, Mahabharata, yeah, okay. yeah, Mahabharata you're was, right. Because both epics I, have a similar look, I, the white guy wasn't going to say anything. So, so the two that get compared are <laughs> we have the Iliad and the Odyssey, and then we have Raman and Mabarath, and both are like the successors to each other. So, you have the Iliad and the Odyssey being two parts of the, the epic stories of Greek. We have Raman and Mabarath, which are our two, and some of the characters and their historical events tie over. But yeah, you're right; it's Mabarath. So, Ronnie, it, could I? Could I throw a modern day trope at you the way mm-hmm. we've talked about leaving the village or the mm-hmm. farm boy or whatever, some modern day trope? And do you how confident are you that you could take any given well, well established trope and we'll say, see. oh, yeah, that this is where that comes from? We'll see. <laughs> but I'm willing <laughs> to give it a try. Yeah, this no, I see. I, I should have uh, I should have uh, gathered a whole should bunch of tropes. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, that's what this my is... series is actually about. So, Tales of Tremaine is a love letter to the idea of the proto hero being rebuilt today. And I actually framed this argument many times in the series that all these stories. I don't say fantasy because I'm not trying to insult the genre. I love it, but mm. as a mythology nut growing up, I've always seen all the similarities, especially to my culture, which was never represented though in South Asian works. But I always saw like, oh, I know this myth because I grew up with it. And I'm like, cool, what if I did this as a love letter to storytelling by using all the historical storytelling techniques, the tropes, the beats, the archetypes, and then I posit that theory in there. And then my character serves as both a classic and new proto-hero, essentially fulfilling or failing those. Um, so that's why I'm so comfortable doing this, because this is genuinely just a love of mine. I'd probably be studying mythology if I could have afforded college, but I couldn't. So. <laughs> college is pricey, man. 
I, mean, I don't it's... know what a mythology professor makes. So let's put that in perspective too. It's what I would have well, gotten he... out of it. I, it's a good question. And they flew him over from Britain. So he was in a, he was a visiting professor. So I don't, it's a good, there you go. and he, he, what I really enjoyed about that was that he told us the Odyssey, the way it was supposed to be told orally with a mm -hmm. song drum. So he would sit, we were sitting in a circle mm. and he was in the middle and he would beat his drum and tell us. Cause these are all epic Gaelic. poems. Yeah. And it, and it was, it was very like, it was beautiful in the way that later we were applying the same narrative structures that we find in the Odyssey to tell our own stories. So I actually used leaving the village to tell a story that my uncle, um, uncle told me uh, about this, um, this one man, whether it's true or not, uh, a big man named Arun, um, and how he left his, his village and settled uh, as a thief um, and settled in a different village. And when, one day when his family's gone, thieves go into his home and how he kind of reflects back on his own like past life. And when he decides to give grace to the thieves, it's because he's forgiving and giving grace to himself. So it's just really important to me mm. to see those things link up because I think sometimes we try to overthink it out of saying like, it's, we try to overcomplicate our stories. I think the best way to when we reflect back is that they're very simple to its core and they have these beats across cultures, across myths. You just need to open your ear up to start seeing that, you know? Mm. Um, one of my favorite ones, I don't know if I talked about it in, a, in our last, in our last um, episode, Craig, but the one, one of my favorite ones is the idea of negotiating with death. I think that's a, mm. a trope that we see often um, in modern storytelling. Say it again. It's what now? Negotiate, negotiating with with death. With death. Okay. Yeah. 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 So like you're either going up against the death lord, the dark lord, however you want to call it, um, and they took away your precious, you know, loved one, um, and you are trying to negotiate for their for their life back. How many times have we seen that story? The most common one is Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, where Orpheus goes into the underworld to find his wife. And right before he steps across the threshold, and thresholds are very, very important uh, symbolically in storytelling, right before he's about to step across the threshold, he, he just wants to turn around. He just wants to make sure that his beloved wife is following him and that, sh and that she hasn't got, gotten lost. And it's just such a human, it's a very human emotion to make sure your family member is safe. And then he turns around and he dooms her for eternity because she disappears and he can never see her again. She can never come back mm. to his world. Now there's a very similar myth in, um, in the Mahabharata in South Asian uh, myth lore with Savitri and Satyavan, but it's, it's a little different in terms of the ending. And I think it's very uh, symbolic of like how some of these cultures differ in terms of um, Indian culture versus Greek culture uh, and how that also influenced Christianity. In Christianity, there's, for, as, a, as an outsider looking into Christianity, it seems that the pursuit of knowledge is um, looked down upon. Mm. Uh, like if, if, you know, if you try to achieve the, the level of knowledge as God, you're going to be struck down. Uh, yeah, go ahead. It isn't that a, it, I, I've always assumed that was a version of, it was like a cautionary version of leaving the village, right? If you yeah. gain certain amount, a certain amount of knowledge or a certain type of knowledge, that's a threshold to use that word. That's going to take you outside of the village. You can never come back because now yeah. you, you know too much. Adam and Eve, 
bite the apple and yeah. uh, you know whatever so it, it, these these uh tropes if you will are all tied together as well not just yeah. not just one to one back through time but they're all interlaced right yes and i i, I would i would say that it's interesting because in in how in Western storytelling, we have that perspective, but in, in South Asian storytelling, if you pursue the knowledge of the gods, you're given a boon. Mm. So many times we've seen um, ascetics, um, like uh, traveling monks, it, it, they, they go into deep levels of meditation. They chant the names of their god. They're like, very, like to them, that is a pursuit of knowledge uh, to see their god before them. And if they, if they, study hard enough they meditate hard enough what happens is that the god appears before them and gives them a boon now what happens is that it's not the 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 god doesn't punish them or you know they're, they're giving that knowledge they're you know they're rewarded for their knowledge by a boon it's man himself who curses himself by whatever boon he takes so one example is rakta beach he was um uh, this king of demons and he i think it was brahma uh he was a student of brahma and he meditated very for a very very long time and this is like years and to the point that brahma took notice and brahma decided to give him a boon and rakta beach if i remember correctly asked to be invincible and that no man or monster can kill him he never mm -hmm. says a woman that's and right I think we, we talked, talked about, about this yeah. and that's when kalima defeats him but but see it's his own it's his own hubris it's his own pride it's humanity that curses himself curses themselves it's not the pursuit of knowledge itself you know right it's um, not the gods it's not the knowledge it's yeah it's, it's, it's a little different yeah so uh, sorry just going back to the the death myth um what's interesting to me is that a lot of cultures have that the japanese have that the native americans have one um, egyptians and, South and norse the Egyptians, the Norse, it's all across different cultures. And it's interesting to me to see it's a, it's the little differences. So Orpheus, he turns around, his wife is gone. Salvatri and Satyavan, she continues to pursue Lord Yama, who is the god of death, kind of like Hades. Um, and instead of punishing her, he gives her three boons. And she being very clever, he, he basically says, I'll give you anything. You just can't ask for your husband's life back. So he has that condition and she's being very clever. One, I think the first boon she asked is that hit her husband's parents or, you know, in-laws get their sight back. Um, the second is that their kingdom gets restored. The third and final one, she asked for a hundred sons. And this is where she tricks Yama. Because when Yama says, okay, I'll, I'll give you a hundred sons. She stops and is like, how am I going to have a hundred sons without my husband? What what do you want me to do? And he realizes in that moment, oh yeah, you're right. And instead of punishing her for tricking him or like being more clever, he gives her her husband back. And they live to have a hundred sons, which I don't you know, clap off to stop it. But yeah, for, for having don't think about it too hard. Yeah, for a hundred sons. <laughs> But but do you see how the, the the you know the how the myths meld together, but then they splinter off in ways that's very resonant to the culture, where in in South Asian culture, pursuit the pursuit of gods, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of gods is synonymous to the pursuit of knowledge, is not punished, it's rewarded, or just deal making, so, or, or deal making because we have exactly. two, 
we actually have another as well. We have um, the story of Primavada and Ruru. And Ruru, and, yeah. And yeah. she is killed similar to Eurydice where she's bitten by a snake. And in here, Ruru does it as much as some first story. He beseeches, again, Yama, the Lord of the Dead. And instead, he just goes, can I deal for my wife back? And he's like, you've got to give me something really precious. It's a, it's a shorter, less romantic story. But it's like, I'll give you half my life to get half hers back. And she's brought back and they spend their remaining time together. It's shorter. But there's an interesting inversion. It's very dark because the Norse myths get dark. But it's called Brynhildr's Ride to Hell. And she mm. was a Valkyrie uh, warrior who was in love with Sigurd, the dragon slayer. And when they both die, um, they didn't die in the best of terms. And she's burned on a, a wagon, which means she gets to actually go on a journey. And through hell, she's actually trying to reunite with his soul. Because in you know other mythologies outside of, let's say, the Western canon, hell or the underworld isn't necessarily a place of punishment. Like in the Greek, Hades isn't a place of punishment. It's, it's just where you go in the afterlife. Everyone goes there, good or bad. And your afterlife is determined, of course, by your behavior in, um, in your life. But in here, she's actually tested to show the commitment of her love. And she's given many different challenges as well as questions to sort of bear her soul. And in it, she doesn't necessarily have the greatest of um, times, but she is sort of reunited for a happy one last, like, we're reunited in hell, but I've gotten the burdens off my chest. So the two lovers still get to spend a different kind of eternity to each other, depending on the variation you read. They don't get their lives back, but that's not what the story is about. It's more reconciliation and reuniting of lovers that way. Um, the Japanese have Izanami and Izagai, and then the Egyptians mm -hmm. have a very um, adult one with Osiris and um, Isis, where part of him is removed um, in his death, a very male part of him. And to bring him back to life, she has to create an artificial version of that part of him, and he is restored <laughs> back. But it, again, it's it's a female take on where the woman succeeds in bringing back her, her lover just with... Um, artificial enhancement i guess but i think i saw theme. a commercial i saw a commercial about this on cable <laughs> news once uh they they were way behind the times apparently the egyptians yeah. were just yeah, yeah. they were yeah. ahead of it yeah. but most of the most popular myths we have whether it's romance or everything in storytelling today usually subsists because we've loved it from our oldest myths, we worshipped and venerated it from the highest of our gods. And as we started bringing them down to demigods, to heroes, and then mortal heroes and knights and champions, um, we usually have reduced the best qualities of the highest into forms more similar to ourselves and our stories. And it still continues mm. today. Um, so, oh, sorry, go on. No, no, no. I was just mostly bringing it back to your, your question of how those authors usually um, comment on these myths and they go super popular versus the more literary um, I think it's because they're just mass appealing to stuff we've also just heard over and over because we inherently love it. So it's not even the myth itself. It could just be the trope taken from the myth, but we've psychologically all seen so many variations of it and we just love it. The biggest example is anime. I don't know if you're a fan of it, but um, there's two very popular styles. There's shonen, which has been usually dubbed boys anime and shoujo, which is dubbed women's and they follow very similar tropes. So, um, you know, Dragon Ball Z spawned a whole iteration of the similarities between Yu Yu Hakusho to it, Bleach, Naruto, one piece which is now the world's largest selling actually form of literature it recently just passed in manga form at 500 million copies it's the only thing in the world to rival Insane. harry potter um longest running anime and all of its tropes are inspired by dragon ball z it's just a different milieu or setting it's pirate adventures but the mm. level up system the power up system grand tournaments those are very japanese manga tropes um and it comes back to this very same idea of shared storytelling and mythology that people love what they love and they're going to just put their spin on it and retell it um, and that's what comparative mythology really is. It's just from the myth angle versus the story. I don't know if we well, lost him. Okay. 
Yeah, no, no, no. 35 minutes later, I, you know, I said, what's comparative mythology? And there you just said, so that's what comparative mythology is. This is great. (laughs) All fiction. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to fire off some, uh, just, just a few really, really basic tropes. And you tell me if you can think of a basis in mythology for these. And Aparna, you you are up too. You can do this too. Mm -hmm. Uh, The orphan. Heroes are so often orphans. Why are they orphans? Oh, so that usually falls into divine parentage. Um, There's one that's a great one, but we can do the adopted the adopted child. So the idea of Moses put down the river basket um, to be adopted. I was about to say Krishna. 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 This is the exact same thing too. So in that story. his mother, Kunti, is given a divine boon by the sun god Surya. It's a virginal birth. Also sound familiar? Um, a god birthing a, a you know, virginal birth son uh, of himself, and that's Krishna. But also, he was also, out of her shame, I guess, you know, having a child out of wedlock, she puts him in a basket and sends him down river, and he's technically orphaned for a little while. Um, some of our earliest myths, I, I can't track which one's the first, because, again, going back to proto-myths, we have some very old stories that pop up at the same time. Um, but yeah, the, we're talking way before BC, like several thousand years. Mm. We have the idea of the orphaned hero, um, usually from divine parentage. That's something they find out yeah. later, um, which also, you know, you can also do with uh, the Skywalker saga. Um, Luke Skywalker, I mean, Anakin Skywalker is sort of orphaned early, you know, um, no father. We know his mother, his mother dies while he's still a teenager in Padawan training. And then Luke is similarly raised in a way of where he's with his aunt and uncle. Luke finds out he has divine parentage in terms of his father was the greatest Jedi of all time. Um, canonically. He just doesn't realize his father's not a bad guy. It's how you twist the trope, but whether we want to take the modern relative back to the oldest, um, they're usually yeah. tied in that we create the orphan for this idea of self-fulfillment and letting him without his parentage first hanging over his head to find himself to it's, have a more it's, adult it's, realization of who he is later. Or she. It's, a, it's a starting of the hero's journey that right. it, it or, originates from there. All right, so next one we go from the orphan to the other side of the uh, hero's journey coin, and that's the wizard. Uh, in mm. fact, we can stick with Star Wars. Star Wars is a great example of two tropes at the same time, mm. which is the good wizard and the evil wizard. Yeah. Um, wizard, I mean, my understanding of this concept only goes back as far as Old English, which basically gives us wizard, a wise person. That will uh, you have it yeah. right there yeah, because what does the wizard say. serve? The wizard serves the role as the advisor, the wise man, or the mentor. And that's what the original arc, if we're using the hero's journey, is it's when a mentor comes in. And usually, historical figures, if we look at the Greek epics and South Asians, your main character has some kind of mentor from an archery tutor because that was one of the best ways of warfare, philosophy, history of warfare, combat arms. You know, when you're shaping, especially uh, these were very patriarchal societies at the time, you're shaping a young man specifically. Um, He's usually going to have a lot of mentor characters, and they play a huge role in their lives. Um, it's the idea of gurus, of, of gurus. And, so, like, and it comes from that South Asian, you know, we see in our stories. But it's also the idea of like the wise one is your guru, it's your teacher, and it's much more. It's deeper than your teacher. It's like your your soul mentor. It's like they they guide you in a very deep and personal way that leads to that self fulfillment journey that Ronnie was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. and we actually see these in society so the greeks obviously had their education system and then people don't realize this but the world's largest library that was actually burned larger than alexandria is a south asian one called nalanda 
which mm-hmm. is, you can still look it up. It's absolutely fascinating, but they had the largest collection of scripts, tomes from different cultures. And they were sort of a public university that fed monks. They had students from all over come. Um, there's actually a history of Greek students who studied in South Asia for so long. They were unaware that after, you know, they passed and died that, that, yeah, uh, there's Gre- tra- yeah. that Greece has fallen or th- the Greece that they knew mm. it's, there was a huge trade route of Indus, um, Greco-Indus roots down there, which is absolutely amazing to find out of how much correspondence went on between them uh, culturally and stuff. But that idea of the mentor comes from that and the wizard, we just gave conferred upon the magical powers because in the oldest epics, they kind of did. I mean, look at Hercules' trainer, right? Um, We can use whether the act you want to use a classical myth or the Disney version, um, (laughs) both have a mythical role, mythical connection into shaping him into arguably one of the most famous heroes that we still understand today. You know, what's interesting, Ronnie, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm stipulating here. What's interesting to me, and I'm going back to like South Asian mythology, is like when we see these gurus, we see these like monks or um, they're like very religious Mm -hmm. men. And when they study, when they chant a lot and when they meditate a lot, they're given that boon. And usually it's like, I want a child. Mm -hmm. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if that also comes from that idea of like the mentorship of like how that mentor is always destined to be attached to a child that may or may not be their own. I don't know. Do you feel like there's a there's a thread there? Or am I just kind of... There is. I don't know if it's a myth thread or more psychological. Because yeah. I, I understand that yeah. too. Because in my actual life, I've had that uh, one of my closest mentors doesn't have children of his own. And he's definitely looked out for me in a very father-like role. That might be a very humanistic, maybe even just male psychology-driven thing. Like we li- we always want to be the guy to pass it down to the next guy um I, in my actual book i've definitely done that where I've, I've dedicated the first buying to jim butcher who actually um saved my life and had a huge impact on me and i i can absolutely say without doubt he's been a mentor and very strong personal figurehead um in my life especially the last five years specifically when i really started transitioning from indie self-publishing to um, traditional uh, mentoring me so I think that you're definitely hitting the nail on the head. I don't want to necessarily assume the mythological connection. I think it's yeah, the opposite yeah. where maybe mm. the mythological stories have it because that's a very Affected human psychological. psychological. Yeah. yeah. Like that's something that's just in us as humans to do. Um, we this see it now in more. Myths. Yeah. We see it now in more female driven stories where the idea of um, the, the motherhood figure who serves also as a mentor, but she's not necessarily the biological yeah. figure because Gail yeah. Carriger has an amazing breakdown of the hero's, uh, the heroine's journey which was actually yeah. created by a student of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. She did the female take of it. And the hero, I did a talk with the heroine's journey on um, SFF addicts and I broke it all down there, but it's a similar idea. There is usually a stronger, older uh, female role model that can help um, that's, younger that's women come Firma. into her own. That's Firma in the Phoenix Kings. Like she is not Alina's mother, but she is her closest confided mentor, teacher, mother figure after losing her own mother. But she's not orphan. She's her dad's still around. Her, her, I was going to curse, her tyrannical father. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, I, I can think of four words off the top of my head that you might have thrown yeah. in there. All right. Last trope that I'm going to throw at you guys. And this one similarly might be, oh, is this, does this have mythological bases mm-hmm. or is this uh, just kind of a, a psychological thing? But my all time favorite fantasy trope is the tavern. And I can oh, see where it's just, it's you know, when you're going on an adventure, I, I think of, um, uh, uh, well, let's take the Lord of the Rings, actually. Let's go back to the Lord of the Rings. All, always my favorite. And 
the prancing our pony. taverns you like we have the green dragon back yep. in the shire right before they ever leave the shire they have this That's community place right but then the the role of the tavern can be one of two things in most fantasy stories either it's that communal place back at home and you go there and back again there and back again you're always coming back to the tavern or it can be a place like Tom Bombadil's house or Bree yep. or Rivendell. These are taverns where there are waypoints on the journey as you go. And I'm curious if, uh, you know, how, how far back the idea of the tavern goes. So in storytelling, I can't actually say because the earliest myths don't use that. However, right. I think once we became societal based, like when the dragons evolved to kidnapping princesses, when we developed societies of that scale where we would have rest and waypoints, the tavern became a localized fixture that became modernized in new storytelling um, because it became the place where stories were told. So there's a fascinating history. Um, the book is called the Ibn Fadlan, and it's about Ibn Fadduda, who was or Ibn Fatuda, mm-hmm. who was a the Marco Polo before Marco Polo from the Middle East, and he went as far as Russia because people don't realize how far old traders used to go because it was an extremely lucrative job if you were willing yeah. to take the risk because you could take spices. 3,000 miles to another country where they don't have them. The amount kings and wealthy people would pay for that is ridiculous. You could make a ridiculous living doing it. And one character and yet the British along still with them. Didn't. Sorry, I was just saying, yet the British still, they colonized the world, took the, didn't even learn how spices yet. Like, I, they still, they still learned but, uh, nothing. <laughs> Sorry, I had what, that. No, you're fine. One of the fascinating things in that book is you realize he brought along with him a traveling storyteller. And this is the idea of why storytellers are so important and part of why I'm doing what I'm doing with Tales of Tremaine is it was one of the it's the original rock star. Um, People after long, hard days of work or they're getting up for like a late if you work harvest and you're working afternoons, you're going to go to the tavern and someone to entertain and bringing a storyteller with you. That's a currency. You could peddle stories from other cultures to new cultures that will deescalate tension. It will enrapture people. It will sell up the price of your goods if they're rare and exotic. It will hold their imaginations. It will ingratiate you to people. And taverns were the number one place where you're guaranteed people are going to be there. People are going to be drinking. They're going to want to be in a good mood. And you can uh-huh. essentially control a little mini pocket society and you can gain information. Um, I think that was an evolution of actual things that happened because we have records of people who relied on s- storytellers and oral performances to just change their environment and do deals and trade money yeah. and so much that it would become enwrap, uh, ingrained in us to want to have this in stories. There's a romanticism about it. Um, Tales of Tremaine is literally a love letter to oral storytelling for oral pleasure. And I, unfortunately, the old myths don't get into that, but I do think humans, we love it so much because um, like you said, it's a mini community and it is bred for storytelling that we've made it important to all our stories. I mean, I certainly did. I think the, it's the idea of the gathering place um, and the gathering place is where you, you feel it's the new safe fire. or it's, it's the new fire. It's either, it's a point in the story where a change happens. There's a shift, there's a pivot. Um, there's a new plot point introduced, or you, you see it's a beginning and the ending. It's a gathering place where we start from there and back again. I think Ronnie, what you were saying about, I just wanted to point out like the oral storytelling. I don't know if it's, it feels more of like a psychological thing where like the way that we pass down stories from the Odyssey to the Ramayana of Lomaki, Homer, like Homer, we, we always look up to these storytellers because in a way they were the vehicles of knowledge. Uh, and it's because of the stories that they, that they spread, that the stories that they told for, for generations to come, that's how we find our lineage. That's how we're connected to our mm. culture. It's the stories are that one thread that connects us all. 
And I think that's why we romanticize the idea of like the tavern, the gathering place, the fire, because there's something so ancient in that idea of like, this is how we spread information. This is how we found out this place is safe. This place isn't. There are thieves on this road. Avoid that road. Mm. It's it was it was a point of survival. And now it's a point of pleasure. It's um, uh, it's fascinating to think about the evolution of you, you call it the new fire, right? We gather around the fire in the cave. Well, now we're uh, an agrarian society. We have towns and, and cities and, and city states and whatnot. So now we have waypoints and inns and taverns. And of course, now we've evolved once again and we have Twitter. Uh, so there's your uh, no, no, we have X. We have X. Now. That's right. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that might get that reaction. OK, guys, we're going to start wrapping up. But let me ask yeah. you this. Um, for those who have listened to this episode and been as engaged as I am, because I find this stuff fascinating and I know I'm not the only one. Where should people go? For like, if they say, oh, I've never looked into comparative mythology once at any moment in my life, and I want to start, what's their 101? Is there a book? Mm -hmm. Is there a podcast you recommend? Is there a website that you like to go to? Something that can help somebody find their footing and start on this kind of journey. So I would actually say right now, because we live in the information age of where people consume visual content and podcasts so much easier on the go, um, I would not recommend going the way I did, which I started with classical books first. And there's actually a great um, expert on this named John White, who is on YouTube under the channel Kreken Ford. And looking him up, this is specifically what he deals with this comparative mythology through Proto-Indo-European. So you might not get most modern ones, but you'll see a lot of the tropes we've talked about and many that I didn't get to yet um, that just fill up all of our modern day fiction and where they come from down to the tiniest things of like guard dogs of hell and how important dogs were in multiple different cultures and why, you know, we have Cerberus and so many others. It's a fascinating channel, but uh Kreken Ford is where I'd recommend most starting. Right on. Aparna, do you have one? I was going to say, see, I, I was trained as a journalist. So I was like, go to the primary sources. So like read, read the source materials, read like some of the Ibn Battuta's like adventures, read the Ramayana, read the Mahabharata, read, the Odyssey. Also, I think also more modern is like Shakespeare. Um, he draws a lot from these quote unquote, like tropified or in a way, like he took the, the ancient storytelling uh, structures and made it into his day and age. And from, from him, we drew some of the storytelling and the stories that we see now, like Romeo and Juliet, the ill-fated lovers, every culture has. And we just talk about Salvatore and Satyavan. We just talk about Orpheus and Eurydice, the ill-fated lovers. Like it's it's been told for eons and eons. It's just like once you start going back enough, just open your ears, open your eyes. You guys are very, very smart. You're natural storytellers. Just just be aware. You're you're gonna pick it up real quick. It's hmm. it's it's it, once you start reading, you're gonna start noticing everything. It's, and it's a lot of fun. And I, I think I would add to that, that once you get a basis in some of these things, obviously the knowledge that you two have far outstrips my own, but I have enough that I can, uh, I can be more appreciative perhaps of, of a really tropey story, something that is super stock standard. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what's the name of the book that came out when I was in high school? Aragon. Uh, yeah. mm. can get can get lit up from many, many different directions. But one of the ways that people come after it, they're like, it's just trope after trope. There's nothing original in it. And I'm like, 
I, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> like it's a fun That's story and it's standard. It does it well. Honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just going to say, um, I, I, re I remember the name of um, that one professor's name is Martin Shaw. He hmm. is a British professor and he is very much into comparative mythology. That's how really I started my interest. Um, so any of his books, his name is Martin Shaw. He really delves into um, the, the way that, you know, myths uh, cross, but he also joined... Uh, uh, focuses on the the role of the storyteller or the bard, and I think there's this one book. Um, I forget what it, oh, all those um, barbarians, which is like actually about the storyteller and the role the storyteller plays um, in like pushing out stories. Mm, yeah, very nice. All right, guys. Well, we should wrap it up at this point, but we should do that by talking about your books and making sure people can get out there and check them out uh, if they've enjoyed this discussion. Aparna, we already already mentioned yours, but uh, you know, hey, it's repetition is uh, that's a sales tool. Okay, yeah. so we're gonna do it again. Give me the the uh, elevator pitch on the Phoenix King. Yeah, well, the Phoenix King is an Indian inspired sci fi fantasy set in a futuristic desert kingdom, where an ex assassin, an heiress, and a tyrant struggle for power, uh, struggle for power when an ancient vengeful goddess reawakens and threatens to send a prophet to take back her kingdom. Very nice. Yes, I do remember talking a little bit about that. That's a great premise. <laughs> it comes out August 29th. So mark your calendars. It's real soon. Yeah, well, by the time I think this will come out after this, the book is out. So it is okay. out now um, and people should go get it. Absolutely. Go get it. The Phoenix King. All right, Ronnie, yours is called, the, the newest book is called The First Binding. Yep. Uh, and uh, yeah, give us a little pitch on that one. So uh, similar to what I talked about, it follows a legendary storyteller in the present day. And uh, he starts off in a tavern, mostly doing a job edition. And you start realizing throughout the book as he starts falling in love with the singer, she discovers that all these famous legendary stories that he's talking about and telling all sound very similar and famous uh, to the same person. And she realizes it's him and he's a legendary sort of proto hero. And he starts confiding in her, all her greatest adventures and um, his journeys and all the different epithets and, you know, legends he's become um, mostly me just writing love letters, storytelling. And the present day you realize um, he claims to have committed the greatest sin and he's secretly trying to solve that in the present day. And that hasn't been revealed what that is. He's working his way towards, and it's full of court politics, drama, assassinations, murder, um, multiple different storytelling techniques, nesting stories. Um, it's a love letter to obviously the structure of Mabadath, which is a frame narrative. It's the world's oldest. And um, there aren't that many, unfortunately, in the West today. There's like two or three yeah. frame narratives that have been done. And that's it. Um, and this is my just chance to do my giant epic. It's been said um, it's like Silk Road meets The Witcher books or Silk Road of Wheel of Time is how it's been pitched, at least by Tor. <laughs> and they, that's a pretty good pitch. I'd say they know how to come up with a tagline, right? <laughs> Silk Road meets The Witcher. That'll move some copies. That's oh, really like cool. I said, it's like the books. So I do want to clarify that less sword swinging than the show because the show and the books get a little bit different. -y. Yeah, <laughs> as is always the case. Now, now let's talk the Wheel of Time. I'm sorry, we've run out of time for today. <laughs> No, <laughs> thank you both for coming on. And uh, like I said earlier, I, I want everybody to check these books out. If you've been interested in this discussion, should be a lot of uh, meat on those bones for you to, to chew through. So Aparna, thank you very much for coming back on. Yeah, thanks for having me again. This is fun. And Ronnie, thank you for coming on for the first time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me, man.
All right. And for those of you listening or watching on YouTube, uh, I'll link to the books. Um, I, I, I was about to say to the author's websites, but I know it's been a while since Ronnie updated yeah. his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there will be links in the description for you to check all this out. Uh, so you don't have to remember the name of everything. It'll be down there. So please do so. Otherwise, once again, go to thelegendarium.com. You can check out past episodes. There is a page, by the way, with all of these author interviews, uh, the author shelf episodes that I've been doing the last year or two. Uh, so there's a whole page of those. If you like this type of discussion, it's there at thelegendarium.com. If you enjoy what we do and you want to support the show, please do go to Patreon. The link is there uh, as well as the link to Discord so you can join. I don't know what we're at. 1,500 other weirdo nerds just like you who want to talk stories all day, every day. That's what we do there. So <laughs> It's our all. gathering place. It's our tavern. This is our tavern. It's a whole lot better than Twitter. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, everybody. And thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you next time. <laughs>